Thanks for joining us for episode 49 of Darling Why, all about the producers. We really hope you enjoy this episode. And on a personal note, I really hope that you go and enjoy this movie as I see it as a complete classic and I think not enough people have seen it. Anyway, enjoy the episode. We'll see you at the end. if I put my notes up on it screen. would help that would yeah help. that'd be a good start I think you should just freestyle it yeah just like oh man it's building all of my poems <laughs> it took me a second to realise what <laughs> that you were doing <sighs> alright everybody so today's episode as you're probably aware by the fact that you've clicked on it is all about the 1967 comedy classic the Producers, starring Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Now, The Producers was written and directed by Mel Brooks, American comedy legend. I'm not going to give you all the details about Mel Brooks' background because I am going to save a little bit more of this because there will be more Mel Brooks in the history of this podcast. I will tell you that for free. Very good. Oh yeah, we'll be, com- we'll be coming back to the oeuvre of Mel Brooks at least once more, probably twice. Okay. So... I'll give you the quick background. So Mel Brooks, um, Jewish-American comedy legend, writer, actor, screenwriter, director. Um, he famous, One of his more famous pieces from before this film. This was his debut film. Okay. This is his debut film. One of his most famous things before this was the 2,000-year-old man sketch with himself and Carl Reiner. Where basically, he plays like a 2,000-year-old man. Carl Reiner asks him questions, and he basically answered them in ridiculous ways. He basically plays it like a slightly older Jewish man. Now, was this on television? Yes. Okay. It was also recorded on multiple albums. It's the sort of thing that it would make very little sense to people of, say, a younger generation. But basically, it's the sort of thing that now would be a TikTok sketch. Okay. But in those days, that you couldn't really do that. So It's more a variety show type thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like This is also referenced in The Simpsons. The reason I'm even aware of The 2000-Year-Old Man is because of a reference in The Simpsons. What reference in The Simpsons? There's a reference in The Simpsons. Uh, Homer picks up Mel Brooks and literally says, oh, let's do the 2,000-year-old man. Uh, you'll be Carl Reiner and I'll be you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So the producers, as I say, stars Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Now, this film had a very sort of, I don't want to say torturous genesis. I don't want to say torturous, but it wasn't exactly easy to get made. So... In the 1960s, 20 or so years before, you may be aware of an event called the Second World War. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was quite a big deal. I do recall from junior user history learning about the Second World War, yes. Yeah. Yes. So Mel Brooks was in the armed forces at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. What Mel Brooks wanted to do with this film was to ridicule the living shit out of, um, well, Adolf Hitler. Fair. That was the main reason this film exists. Okay. He wanted to ridicule Hitler. He would repeatedly ridicule Hitler in other productions and films that he made later on. So yeah, this is not a topic that he's willing to let slide. He's gonna keep keep going. <laughs> yes, he really, but like he really believes that people like that need to be ridiculed rather than yeah. sort of. You can't really like you know get on your soapbox and be like, well, you're not very nice and you're very bad. But that does. He thinks that that doesn't work. Yeah, he's he, had, he said like I'll touch on this in a bit later because I think it's really interesting. But basically, people like this, in his eyes, you need to just laugh at. You need to yeah. ridicule them. You need to take the piss out of them. 
they you cannot just you know be like well actually i don't think you should kill millions of jews that's not very nice you can't that doesn't work yeah you can't argue with these people you have to mock them yeah yeah i there's there's several different things that like i watch and this is too where people have similar attitudes Mm -hmm. um of being like well this person is just a piece of shit like in terms of like historical bastards as it were and be like and now we need to just absolutely mock the shit out of them yeah because that's what they deserve (laughs) but you know this may sound strange but like making a whole film mocking hitler was not something you'd, you'd assume, right? American film studios would be like, great, nobody likes Hitler, he's a prick. It's good. We're going we're gonna to mock Hitler, we're going to make loads of money because, you know, we beat him. So surely, you'd, you'd assume 20 plus years after the war, surely someone would be like, yeah, I'll take that script, I'll take that idea. I'm actually not surprised it was a challenge to get made. Oh, actually. it was. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised that, that no one was taking that, especially in the 60s. Yeah. I think when Americans, to my knowledge, when Amer- when there was like an American sort of like, you know, cartoons punching Hitler in the face type yeah. of propaganda, like not propaganda, but, um, you know, films and stuff, it was, it was not um, like satire or making jokes at him necessarily. Yeah. It was very much like, good guy beats bad guy type stuff so and this is not that (laughs) you know this is very different so So. essentially the producers is a story of two people essentially the story of a producer who wants how do i put this it is the story of two producers who you know essentially creative form of creative accounting want to defraud investors by making more money with a flop than they could with a hit Mm mm-hmm that is the basic premise of this movie. Now, I might say, well, hang on, where does the Hitler come into it? Let me explain. So, the plan to do this involves... <laughs> you see, originally this film was not going to be called The Producers. Mel Brooks always wanted to call this Springtime for Hitler. When he was writing it, it was called Springtime for okay. Hitler. <laughs> I can, again, I can understand why the studios were like, let's change Well, when he approached, well, he approached Universal <laughs> Pictures and they wanted him to call it Springtime for Mussolini... So basically, oh, they wanted <laughs> essentially they wanted him to rewrite instead of being instead of having producers finding musical about Adolf Hitler, he wanted them to rewrite it with the producers finding musical about Mussolini. Why? Because Mussolini was, I presume, it's because he was seen as less of a less of a threat. He was more okay to yeah, like it was okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but but to what end? It I don't was, know. It was. After like, the like war, was, yeah, they like were a, both dead. Know. See, like the slightly cuddly version. What's he going to do? He's less likely to come back from the grave. That's the, really strange. The Italian fascists were less likely yeah. to invade. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> huh. Eventually, he spoke to a producer called Sidney Glazer, who agreed to finance the production, but he did demand that the title be changed. Hence, why the film is called The Producers. Okay. <laughs> rather than Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> Well, you've got to think of those sales, you know? Yeah. So the film cost about $941,000 to make. That's not a ton of money in 1967. Today's standards, it's like buttons. It's yeah, practically yeah. nothing. But, you know, in the main, the film was sort of financed by... Um, it was fun- There was a philanthropist who sort of part financed it. And there was another chap called Joseph Levine who was work for, working for a production company called NBC Productions who also pre- distributed the film. We'll come back to him. We'll come back to him. So... The two, as I say, the two leads of the film, played by Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Now, Zero Mostel was an actor, comedian, who had a very up-and-down career. Mm. Now, the reason why his career sort of went on the downswing in the 1950s, 
There's no other way to say this. He got blacklisted by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Great. Zero mistake. I mean, look, some some Samuel, top Hollywood yeah. faves. Yeah. Were. Yeah. Um, Lucille oh, Ball got, was yeah. also. Got got blackballed. Yeah. He got famously. mega blacklisted. Like foot like indisputably blacklisted. Right? Wow. Because of course, it's not real. The blacklist, of course, is not real. But it is. But it is. It was. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, got, he got super blacklisted. Oh, man. He got blacklisted essentially because um, they were... So there was a choreographer called Jerome Robbins who was testifying before the HUAC mm-hmm. and he named Zero Mostel. And, well, Jerome Robbins basically named him because he didn't want to get outed as gay. Oh, okay. Which is, yeah. Yeah. That is the thing, isn't it? Um, we won't out you and you'll tell us You'll, you'll give us some names yeah like Zero Mostel very much of the left there is oh, yeah. he's in dispute like he was he's open he was open about it he's very much of the left he in his acts he'd repeatedly mock right wingers for years mm. he's not someone that you could say well actually I think he's a free market fundamentalist so you're, what you're saying is Joseph McCarthy wasn't a fan no Okay. <laughs> Joseph McCarthy, not a fan. Not buying those club tickets to his shows. No, okay. not buying the club tickets. But eventually, when all of that went away, like for a lot of the time that he wasn't acting on screen, because the Blackest didn't really exist mm-hmm. in theatre, so he did a lot of theatre. He was also a painter. Okay. He did a lot of painting during that time. Did a lot of painting. He also um, originated the role of Tevier in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, okay. Yeah. He always was a little bit displeased that he was not asked to perform the role in the film adaptation. In the yeah, I can see why if you originated it in, on the stage, you should almost be given like the right of first refusal for the film. Yeah. Something polite, you know? Yeah. His comeback to film um, was comeback to... He, he played a role in, in, a play, in a comic play called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. He was then brought into the film version, but it was interesting because this piece was choreographed by a Mr. Jerome Robbins. Now, <laughs> you'd think it would cause a lot of attention, but actually, he buried the hatchet pretty much immediately. Oh, okay, that's really good. You know, it, it, yeah, he sort of said something to the effect of, we gentlemen of the left never telling each other. So, yeah, basically, he took the high road. Okay. Yeah, that, like, this is the part of it. Like, there's um, Zero Mustard's son did a whole play about, uh, I don't want to say it was all about the house and American TV screen, but he dramatised it yeah. in a play called Zero Hour. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on this because I, I, I there's a lot of extra context I could give, yeah. but I, I don't have the brain to really contextualize it properly. Yeah, and it's well, it's interesting because like when I first saw this, which was what like a month or two ago, very recently, yeah. in the last couple of months, um, I obviously knew who Jing Wilder was yeah. because I've seen Willy Wonka yeah. and other films, but mainly that. And <laughs> he haunted my childhood, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I had never heard of Zero Mustel. Yeah, this, this was his biggest film. Okay. Yeah, he passed away in the 70s. Um, but yeah, this was his most famous role. Mm. But yes, so he's play, he plays Max Bialystok, the, he, one of the titular producers. His partner in crime, as it were, is played by, as you mentioned, the legendary Gene Wilder. Oh. In his first sort of like starring film role. He had a little role in Bonnie and Clyde, but this is his first, in terms of films, this was his first sort of like role where okay. he has more than like one line sort of thing and he was known to Mel Brooks he because he'd appeared in a play with um, Mel Brooks's wife the um, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate aka Anne Bancroft oh, okay they were in a production of Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children 
for you big drama nerds out there. Bit of Brecht. Oh. You hate when I bring bring up Brecht. Yeah, you I absolutely don't. hate Brecht. And then you're, <laughs> bringing, then you're bringing him up? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, you know, like Gene Wilder was never like, I want to be a, like a big comedic actor per se. Yeah. But, you know, he recalls Mel Brooks, you know, he recalls like, Mel Brooks recalls saying to Gene Wilder, like, you were naturally really funny. Like, why... Gene Wilder couldn't understand why people were just laughing at him. They couldn't understand why people were laughing at the audience. Mel Brooks like, you're naturally really funny. Like, something about Mm. your whole presence that is really, really funny. And so when the film was being cast... um, So Zero Mistel had already been cast. And Gene Wilder had to audition for the role of Leah Bloom at the insistence of Mostel. So when he arrives, Gene Wilder's obviously shitting himself. He's nervous as fuck. But when he arrives... Zero Mostel just goes up to him, like embraces him and just gives him a massive kiss on the lips. Oh. Gives him a full on smacker. Like, Amazing. Like, yeah. And that just, Gene Wilder said, like, just completely dissolved the tension and he auditioned. And yeah, it was, it, like, yeah, they were like, this is going to work. So <laughs> just to highlight the situation that Gene Wilder was in, he's working out to be, he's not exactly moneyed. During the first sort of table read of the script, he had to he excused himself to go to a dentist appointment. What he actually was doing was going to the unemployment office to get a fifty five dollar check. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's just that's yeah that that's this is a low like this is a Gene Wilder again not a star at this time mm. not a star at all. Now there's a character in this film called Franz Liebkind. He is the he is the escaped Nazi or whatever you want to call him escaped travelled from Germany whatever he was originally going to be played by Dustin Hoffman <laughs> I am not joking that is shocking do you know why I didn't end up playing it because he got an audition for a little film called The Graduate okay my brother was like fine go they'll see you're ridiculous and then they'll send you straight back to me and, and then he gets the part wrong. so he gets to act alongside Mel Brooks's wife Oh, that's that's a little fun little synchronicity, isn't it? Yeah, genuinely, that because that, yeah, I think Dustin Hoffman originally was asked to read. Like, I think he wanted, I think Mel Brooks wanted to read for Leo Bloom, and the radio said, "No, I want to play the German." Oh, okay. So, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a good thing because Kenneth Mars is just fucking incredible. Yeah. And the best thing about Kenneth Mars, well, I said the best thing about Kenneth. Mars, you might be thinking, who is Kenneth Mars? You might, you might be thinking, you've not really seen him anything. You have, because he's King Triton in The Little Mermaid. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yep. That's him. Well, that's fun. That is him. But yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So the film itself took about eight weeks to shoot. As I mentioned, it would cost $941,000, not a penny more. Um, took about eight weeks to shoot. The production was very fraught. Now, it has to be said that Mel Brooks and Zero Mostel's relationship took... Well, basically, it all went a bit shit there was a lot of tension there's a lot of tension a lot of aggression a lot of difficulty part of this difficulty was due to the fact that Zero Mostel had a sort of clause in his contract that he wouldn't shoot past half past five and this was basically because about in about 1960 he got hit by a bus and that injured his leg very badly Mm. so yeah that say it would cause him a lot of discomfort going forward Um, by the way Zero Mostel basically ended up doing this film because uh, Gene Wilder, not Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks um, got Zero Mostel's wife to read the script, recommend it to him, and then he would agree to do it because, like, he didn't necessarily want to do it at first. He yeah. So Mel Brooks sort of had to, like, go around him to get him to do it. 
Um, the first time that he saw Zero Mistel perform, the uh, Mistel got on the floor and impersonated a coffee percolator, just to give you an idea of the, just to give you an idea of what the man was like. Acting. Acting. I mean, Mel Brooks, had, I know I said Mel Brooks had been working on this for a while. He mentioned, you know, I mean, he was speaking in, he used to Playboy in the, six, in the 60s, well, 1966, sorry, that he'd been working on Springtime for Hitler. That originally it was going to be like a play within a play, or it was going to be like a, um, a fit, uh, it was going to be like a novel. He was thinking of mm. making it into a novel instead of a film. He was going to stage it as just a stage play, but that would have required too many set changes. We'll come back to that later. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> the main character in this film, Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mistel. Now, this character, Mel Brooks very much did. You know the phrase, write what you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, Mel Brooks very much wrote what he knew for this character. So, no, genuinely, I'm not bullshitting you. Okay, let's hear that angle. Right, I'm so curious quote, which element is the bit quote. he knows. So, when Mel Brooks is very young, <laughs> I worked for a producer who wore a chicken fat-stained Homburg and a black alpaca coat. He pounced on little old ladies who would make love to them. They oh, gave him no. money for his plays and they were so grateful for his attention. Later on, there were a couple of guys who were doing the flop after flop and living like kings. A press agent told me, God forbid they should ever get a hit because they'd never be able to pay off the backers. I coupled the producer with these two crooks and bang, there was my story. So he actually knew... Oh, yes. that's wild. Okay. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> Yes, he that did. Very funny. <laughs> so yeah, if you if if I, I if I worry that I've not made the premise very clear, I hope that clears it all up. Because mm-hmm. it that is the premise. That is the entire premise of the movie. Let's crack on. So this film was introduced to me by my father. Mm. I didn't just randomly discover this sort sure. of thing. My father would have been maybe, he would have been about 11 years old when this came out. So I presume he would have seen it a few, I don't know if he would have seen it when he was 11. I'd never asked him that. Yeah. Because it wasn't really, this film wasn't really a big box office hit at the time. This film was something that was very much accrued its popularity down the years. Yeah. This is not something that was a, believe me, I will go into it later, but this was not a hit. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> the last thing I would describe this film as is a hit. But at the same time, it kind of... Again, we'll get to that. So as I say, this one was introduced to me by my dad. I remember watching it. I would have been about 12 the first time I saw it. And I thought it was one of the funniest fucking things I'd ever seen in my life. I didn't... The thing is, when you're that age, you like... Comedy from a time before you were born, or just... You know, comedy has changed so much. Yes. What... The, the sort of films that you would see then... I'm not going to say, oh, they wouldn't make them like this today, but... Because that sounds fucking... That sounds, very partridge. But in this, in that style, they would. Yes. Certainly. It's yeah. not necessarily about even the content. It's how the yeah. comedy is done is very different yeah. than how we would laugh about things today, See, necessarily. One of the main things I love about this film is the dynamic between Mustel and Wilder. The wild eyed, yes. genuinely like hysterical, like, as in, I'm not just like hysterical, funny, but like, hysterical in the sense that they they both look like they're about to jump out the screen and eat you at various points in the film. Mm. They like the camera is right up in their face a lot of the time. The dynamic between them is like one of the reasons I love this so much is Gene Wilder both comes across as very sympathetic but also at the same time like he's been corrupted by Max Bialystok. Yes. Like his Leo Bloom is very much corrupted and I like that dynamic very much because I like seeing two shitty people 
try be, do shitty things and get the comeuppance. That's that's funny. Yeah. That is funny. Like at, just in general, like this you know this sort of thing, this sort of dynamic you can see in things like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Shitty people getting their comeuppance. Yeah. Like they don't win. No, no. They're, like this isn't a film. Like there are consequences for them being yeah. shitty people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't they're like spoiler alert. As you know, because this is some sort of deep plot that you've all got to follow. Oh, spoilers they, for a movie that came out, what, 50 years ago? Yeah. More than 50 <laughs> years ago? Yeah. And that has been adapted into multiple different readings. Anyway, <laughs> like, this, you know, that dynamic, like, the, there is a scene in particular that if that doesn't... There's a scene involving Gene Wilder and Zero Mister having a giant argument. Gene Wilder gets more and more hysterical. If that scene doesn't make you laugh, I don't know... I genuinely don't understand... I, I I can't I cannot fathom a world where that scene doesn't make someone laugh. Yeah, and that's where Gmod is just screaming how hysterical he is, and he's convinced that Zero Mostel is going to jump on him like Nero. Yeah, he's just screaming about Pompeii and like. <laughs> and like as someone who saw it age thirty in twenty twenty two, it's still very fucking funny. Like it's there's something about their performance like I, I I wonder would it be like the writing's very good but it's also it's everything together yeah. like the performances are really good I wonder yeah. if in two different actors hands if it would have held up so perfectly do you know what I mean we can talk about that yeah but I think I was I, I they're both in their kind of like we're playing to the characters still very charming and commanding yeah. on screen there's a star power oh, yeah. to them both you know that yeah that kind of je ne sais quoi yeah so, zero, so Max Bialystok, Zero Mostel, his entire thing, his entire production, all his productions are essentially funded by him shagging old ladies yes. and getting them to give him money. Yeah. And we see a lot of this in the film. Oh, yeah. We see a lot of... <laughs> I mean, put it this way. I think this would have been the first time I ever was made aware of the concept of role play, if you know what I mean. Well, it's in it. Yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah, I mean. Like, I think it's the first time I'd ever seen that on screen. I didn't know what to call it when I was little, but I yeah. was just like, oh, he's being creepy. <laughs> like, uh. But the thing is, Mostel gives you... He manages to convey the the charm, because he's very charming to them. Yes. But you can tell that he's just a he's piece like, of shit I sleaze. want those checkies. Yes. Give me those checkies. Can't checkies. produce play without checky. Yeah. <laughs> like... Again, in a lesser actor's hands, it would just come across as incredibly, like, horrible. Yeah, yeah. But he manages to straddle that line because, frankly, the man was... I mean, even if this is the only thing he'd ever done. Yeah, ever, amazing ever, performance. Ever, it's a fucking incredible performance. And I haven't even gotten to the fact that... So... <laughs> so, after Gene Wilder's Leo Bloom, after he, you know, he appears, he goes to the books, and then posits a creative accounting theory that a producer can make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Now, this is music to Bialystok's ears. Very much music to me. Because he's swimming in flops. Yeah, he hasn't had a hit. I don't I don't know if... I can't remember if in, this, in the original film, because, well, some of you may know this already, this film... What's it? This story was rewritten, essentially, as a stage musical in 2001. And... They explicitly said in the stage musical that Max Bielsa used to be like a big shot producer. I think that's implied in the film because I've not seen think... the musical and that was my impression. Yeah, it's not explicitly stated in the film. No, but I, I th- think the impression is like he, there are a few he story changes. There and are, then yeah. he's on a low, yeah. low right, and that's why that's why he goes for the old ladies. Yeah. It wasn't his always yeah. technique. 
that's what he's been. See, I to. always see. I always saw it as he always was like this. Oh, okay. I always saw it as he was like this. Even if he was successful, I always saw. It oh, as yeah. A big sleaze. I mean, like sure. Like, for, I, like, this I whole think that's thing forever. his character. I think he is a big sleaze, but he could have been like a successful one who wasn't ripping off old ladies. <laughs> he was a sleaze, but was yeah. making things that brought in money. Yeah. So after these, after these two agreed to their insane partnership, because as far as. Um, Bialystok is concerned. Leah Bloom lives a shit, boring life. And what I really kind of like in this... Again, this is like... In this version, Bialystok, it feels like he's corrupting him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's corrupting him to the ways of, you know... Oh, if you do all this... You know, you, you can make loads of money. You can have a real fun life. We're going to go... We're going to get all this money. We're going to go go to Rio. So the plan is, raise a million dollars, pick the worst play ever, uh, pick the worst director ever, have it close on opening night because it's so shit and offensive and awful, take all the money. Because... You know, it's it's close. You can't jack pay anyone. Like you know, like <laughs> it's a great plan. Great plan. Can't possibly fail. So they go. They find a play called Springtime for Hitler, or to give it its full title, Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Ava in the Berkst Garden. Forgot how to subtitle. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> so, they, they, they read all these plays like not ridiculous. Like, basically, they're rejecting plays because they're just a bit boring, but. You know, putting on a musical about Hitler, a positive portrayal of Hitler in New York. That's going to tank. <laughs> that's going to immediately explode and go nowhere. So they find this play and then they go and meet the writer, Franz Liebkind, who, when they first encounter him, is just immediately declaring he has no affiliation with the Nazi party because he assumes that like they're like secret police, they're going to arrest him. And, <laughs> and Kenneth Mars... Right, he basically did... You know the whole method actor thing? Yes. Yeah, he did that. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> he what never, a choice! <laughs> he never sort of... Like, he was wearing the costume the whole time for the wow. whole show. Yeah, he fucking stank to high heaven. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> he stank to high heaven. And he starts... You know, he starts... Here's all these pigeons. And, you know, he's... That rant that he does about Churchill and how fucking shit he was as a painter. <laughs> <laughs> that rant about how... Hitler could paint a whole apartment in one afternoon, two coats. Oh, that's, <laughs> I mean, that is very funny. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh, my God. They take this thing, and then they, they go and find the worst director. Well, Bialystok has a director in mind. They go and find this ridiculous director. Some could argue this film actually put LGBT people on the screen in a way that a lot of films didn't. The reason I say this is because the director they find, uh, Roger, De- well, the director, Bialystok isn't even funny. Bialystok knows exactly who he's going for. Mm. So they go to Roger Debris, who is very much, well, he's obviously gay. Yeah. There's yeah. no, like, it's pretty explicit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's quite explicit. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's text, it's not subtext. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's interesting because he's not portrayed as, like, you know, someone that, the audience should be like afraid of no and and if Max kind of, actually corrects Leo when he when yeah. he kind of acts like that kind of be yeah. like alright you know yeah. kind of it's, it's fine yeah. <laughs> chill, chill out man yeah and it's it's really in- it's you know there's a whole I mean his sort of him and his sort of assistant slash lover I can never quite tell if they were supposed to, meant to be lovers but Carmen Gia like I can never quite tell if they were meant to be lovers. Well, I assume that the, I assume the, the grey area is, yeah. is the point. Yeah. But like, their little dynamic is very amusing. And, you know, 
the performances there are just oh, they're fucking brilliant but I have to reserve special shout out for Dick Sean's performance as a, as a Lorenzo Saint Dubois aka LSD Dick Sean has a large sequence where he's auditioning for the role of Hitler and it's basically like a piss take hippie song and he just sounds like Ned Flanders' dad he, yeah he's Ned Flanders' dad mixed with like I mean those fucking shoes I could those shoes like that whole sequence it's like a four minute sequence of film he's just doing this Jim Morrison Ned Flanders dad crossover song called Love Power I don't know if they just mean I don't know if Mel Brooks was just like I don't know if he's anti-hippie but I get the impression that he found a lot of that stuff a bit silly yeah I mean silliness this, yeah silliness is kind of the what you get from it it's not yeah. it's not it's not more malicious yeah. than that necessarily it's just like this is silly God, I used to think that shit was the fun I, I honestly thought that whole sequence when I was younger I thought it was like the funniest bit of the film Cause it's like, the, because it's the, very silly yeah, it's yeah. so silly it's so stupid <laughs> at the end of it he ends up getting select well Bialystok immediately shouts that's our Hitler to this absurd fucking hippie caricature person so the the big centrepiece really of the film the big centrepiece is the number springtime for Hitler that's that's you know the big centrepiece of the movie Mm. the climax if you will is you know they've got the theatre they're you know it's opening night which is you know they want it to be closing night but everyone else of course the director the writer they all you know they're they, all in it for they're real. For real. They're yeah. not in the scam. No, the scam is entirely be out of stock and bloom. Everyone else is earnest. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> springtime for Hitler, the song Mel Brooks wrote the song. This springtime for Hitler stuff wasn't written almost fully until they pretty much got to set. They filmed it in a theater. They basically it wasn't like he written the song like months before and I okay. you know he couldn't really he couldn't read music so okay yeah this will come into play a little bit later he um. They sort of dealt the choreography and the costumes. I was almost sort of done almost on the fly because some of the looks that you see are quite striking. Yes, <laughs> there are some interesting choices involving pretzels and various food items. And uh, <laughs> I want to ask you: mm. when you heard the song "Springtime for Hitler," especially the lyrics, did it? Because I know you've sort of mentioned this in passing to me. Oh yeah, I so it was like only if you. Uh, this is what we were getting at. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still thought, again, thought in 2022. Yeah. Um, not the 60s. And I was still quite, uh, I mean, shocked is me. I've, I've, say, I've been saying shocked. I think that's maybe like a little too strong. I wasn't like, turn it off. Yeah. But I was still kind of like, oh, wow. <laughs> you went there. <laughs> like, yeah. it, 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 it still is like, it's, it's silly, but it's not, it's still kind of going there. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like the hippie stuff, which is yeah. so silly that you're like, oh, this is like, I still was like, oh, okay. <laughs> We're really, it, it was hitting me in the way that I think that like the characters intend it to hit you, which is yeah. this is offensive shit, yeah. you know? And I was like, huh. Yeah. Like even knowing what the whole premise of the movie <laughs> and everything is like, and I, I think that, that, that stands to like the, the, the writing and what yeah. it is trying to get at, yeah. you know? And I suppose the kind of the point that if they did it, if the producers had made it earnestly, yeah, that actually would be quite shocking. Yeah. Um, and it's only the fact that they've been so stupid about yeah. it that it that it that it softens the, the yeah. blow. The audience is so is so offended by yeah. the opening number. Like I mean, 
you know, when you've got lyrics like springtime for Hitler and Germany, winter for Poland and France. Like, that's shocking. <laughs> that is. Yes. That's... <laughs> I was like the audience. I yeah. was like, because I hadn't heard the song before, yeah. you see. You had. You've, you've been that's been in my head in. for so long. That I, song was an immediate earworm. I had only heard, I, I kind of had heard the tune before. Yeah. I remembered the phrase springtime for Hitler, but I, yeah. I had never really listened to like the detail of it. Yeah. And I was like, huh. Okay, that's where we're going. Okay. <laughs> There's a moment, I mean, the line, don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party, that's Mel Brooks's voice. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you're wondering why, yeah, it, that is Mel Brooks. That was, um, yeah, that, as a, that's Mel Brooks's voice. Like, yeah, so the moment that the production turns around from this is an appalling flop to actually this is hilarious is when, as soon as... Hitler himself comes as soon as Lorenzo Saint Dubois comes on stage as Hitler for the first time and basically performs Hitler like Ned Flanders' his dad. Yeah. The audience suddenly, who are all leaving in the jokes, they all suddenly come running back in because they think it's hysterical. Yeah. And then they all decide essentially that this is actually a giant parody. This, this is, is like genius. This is comic <laughs> yeah. genius. Yeah. And so the production that was meant to be a complete bust, offend everyone, disgust everything and everybody, to the point where Bialystok literally like tries to bribe a critic deliberately to get a shit review to like help influence the the production getting killed off immediately. It becomes a hit. That's the, you know it, it will it will play many nights. There's even you know there's a moment where Franz Liebkind is so offended he gets up and starts shouting about how offensive this performance is. And people assume that's part of the show. Yeah. Like, like there's, some guy, there's some random Nazi in the audience just starts shouting about how offensive this is. <laughs> part of the performance. It's part of the performance. And yeah, so, you know, they, they, they try and, yeah. So eventually, um, obviously it all goes to shit. They end up in prison. The end. Because they are, <laughs> they've sold conservatively a billion percent of this musical to every little old lady in New York, essentially. Yeah. But yes, I, I must stress, I must stress, I feel like I haven't stressed this enough. This may sound like a film, you may, like, you may have noticed, I've not really mentioned, there's very little female presence in this film. No, there's like very little. one woman in the whole there is, thing? Well, yeah, there's, the old, there's all the old ladies. Oh, there's the all the old ladies. The there's like one, there's their secretary that they yeah. hire. Who literally has like two lines. No one, I don't feel like any of them has a name because the old ladies, he all has like nicknames. Yeah, the old ladies them. are all credited with their nicknames and shit. Yeah. But like. God bless those old ladies. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's literally credit is just hold me, touch me. It's their Winwood's part. Just they yeah. look, they knew what they were. Yeah, yeah. Those yeah. old ladies are icons. <laughs> yeah. Um, They're fierce, independent women who know what they want. Yeah. They, they won't be held down by yeah. society. No. They're 80 and loving it. Yeah. <laughs> The other female character is um, a secretary that Bialystok High is called Ulla, who's played by Lee Meredith. Basically, her role is essentially one scene of just Bialystok being essentially... A big perv. Big old perv. <laughs> big old perv. I have money, so I'm going to hire this young woman I'm going to, who doesn't speak dance. English. Nope. And I'm going to get her to dance for me. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's it. Like, that's it. Yeah. Just to emphasise, he's not just creepy with old ladies. He's creepy with young ladies, yeah, too. Yeah. Not ageist about it. Yeah. <laughs> Creep all around. With his big comb over. Like, I've got to talk about look like Zero Mostel's eyes repeatedly look like they're going to explode out of his own skull. Yes. The scene where him and Bloom are having an argument and Bloom is, you know, getting his blue blanket out. Gene Wilder does hysterical, like better than basically anybody that's ever done it. Yeah. 
I wish I could reach the level of hysterics that Gene Wilder could reach. Mm. That scene, that's that particular scene, like they filmed that right at the end of the day. They were all really knackered. Like Gene Wilder was like, I don't have the energy, I don't have the energy. He basically got Mel Brooks to go get him two Hershey bars. Fill me with chocolate. Yeah, basically, fill him with chocolate. Like Uda. Like Uda. <laughs> <laughs> so he feels chocolate and then they start like, screaming at each other. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying not to get myself in a state where I just start laughing because this film does it, it does that to me yeah it's a very tight film as well a very tight 90 minute tight film tight 90 yeah yeah like there's, there's no fat on this movie oh absolutely not yeah, you couldn't sit there and go oh you could probably cut that no scene. there's nothing you could cut from it no and you know me I love I think I love a tight 90 movie yeah love a tight 90 yeah <laughs> why are we making movies that are three hours long all yeah. the time sometimes it's necessary a lot of the time yeah. it isn't no. take note movie makers yeah. <laughs> Kate has spoken <laughs> So I know I mentioned that the production of the movie was a little bit fraught. Mm. So Joseph Levine, who I mentioned earlier, he was one yeah. of the financiers of the film, as it were. He basically wanted Gene Wilder, like, sacked. He was seeing <gasps> early footage. He genuinely wanted Gene Wilder sacked. Wow, okay. Yeah. He said he would have given Mel Brooks about 50 grand to, like... Recast. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Mel Brooks was absolutely adamant that would not happen. No. Just, so good. Yeah. You know, there were various issues. As I say, Brooks and Mostel's relationship did not yeah that really it's hard to say exactly what happened I don't want to go too much into it but it, yeah it, there was tension oh there was tension Mel Brooks you know the first time he walks on set he doesn't shout action he shouts cut instead like he never like I said, he never directed a film before mm. and he only he mostly worked in TV and TV worked very differently to film yes yeah like he worked on a show called Your Show Shows with American variety legend Sid Caesar um, he did a lot of writing for that so that was in the 50s and you know that Again, very different thing. Very They're different. very different things. Like, just listening to, you know, or, like, consuming media that talks, like, about the behind the scenes of how TV film, all those things work. Yeah. Like, A, TV and film are very different. And B, just because you have... You could be a really great writer or a yeah. really great performer. It doesn't mean that will necessarily translate into directing yeah. or that you will know from being on the receiving end all the things you need to consider yeah. when doing it for the first time. So, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. The last film, the last scene they shot for this movie, the last actual scene that was shot was the scene where Bloom agrees to go along with the scheme. Oh, okay. At the, at That's the fact early it's the in last, the movie. Yeah, it's the last scene that was shot and it very nearly didn't get shot because at this point, the relate Brooks... <laughs> I don't want to like, do this movie anymore. Yeah, they were, they were not, yeah. It was, they basically had to sort of, um, they had to sort of convince him to, do, yeah, it, but they got there in the end. They got there in the end. Now, with regards to the critical reception, I know I mentioned it earlier, critics, for the most part, didn't really care for it. Like, early critics that saw it were like, nope, you know, they would just think that a lot of people would say it was in poor taste. Yeah, that's what I would have suspected. I was going to ask you, why didn't they like it? And poor taste would have been the yeah. thing I would have Crudeness, suspected Crudeness, poor taste. Yeah. I know uh, Mel Brooks has said that he'd received a lot of letters from rabbis in the New York area being like, this is appalling, how could you do this? How could you oh, do okay. this? Which he reply to a lot of them basically saying you must ridicule these people yeah. you must mock these fucking people you cannot just get on your soapbox you have to mock them yeah he was like again i know i mentioned it, but that's you know he was very 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 firm on that and if you asked him today because he is still with us he still probably is exactly the same yeah. thing and like it's, it's one of those things you see it with this kind of thing like 
um, you know, e- even in the thing of like, do you speak out against people? Yeah. Do you mock them? Yeah. Do you ignore them and yeah. don't give them the, you know, yeah. the oxygen in the room? Yeah. And there's no perfect answer because all of these things work at different points and in different spaces. Yeah. And so it's a, yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> it's true. It's tough. Now, the thing that got this film sort of off the ground in the original sense, the film sort of had an unlikely saviour and that unlikely saviour is Peter Sellers. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So Peter <laughs> Sellers, um, he ended up seeing this film. He so Sellers was in this sort of like movie club, and they were they were going to watch the, on the particular night they saw this. They originally were going to be screening um, a Federico Fellini movie. Okay. Um, Ivor Toloni, if you're wondering, and they couldn't find the film. Like they couldn't. I don't know what happened. The copy of it must have got lost, or you know, someone just dropped it, or you know, it was under a desk or something in the in the in the screening room. So he was making another movie, and the director of this movie had his wife. Yeah, so they prepared dinner, and yeah, so the projectors end up running the producers instead. And Peter Sellers fucking loved it, so he calls Joseph Levine, and it's at two in the fucking morning to say the producers is a masterpiece. Three days later, Peter Sellers pays for a full-page ad in Variety. Full-page ad. He, and he even said things like, last night I saw the ultimate film, etc. So Peter Sellers went to bat for this movie in, in the trailer. So in the ad, was he literally kind of being like, like I'm Peter the- Sellers and I'm telling you yes. <laughs> to go see the producers. Yeah, <laughs> okay. basically. So, yeah, he then took out, when the movie opened in New York, because originally I, I opened... Because how films used to like they didn't just open wide. You open small and you go bigger. Yeah, that was how it used to sort of work. And a lot of audiences just did not respond to it. Mm. It played well in the cities. In New York, yeah. it played very fucking well. Uh, Sellers did take sense. out an ad in the New York Times as well. And there was a you know there's a, a couple of theaters that the film broke box office records at at the time. And Brooks were going to say the film was very well liked in the big cities, but like saying Des Moines, Iowa, it was just didn't get it. People just didn't get it at all. It fascinates me. It fascinates me that people wouldn't get on board with this film. I just, I, I like it. in the sixties though, even, with the yeah, taste then, thing. Even then, well, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Mm. Here is the thing. The film would go on to win the Oscar for best original screenplay. Oh, okay. Well, do you know <laughs> the, the big, the most famous film that beat in that category? That it was a two thousand and one, a Space Odyssey. Oh well, yeah, it's a better film yeah. than that. Um, that's why. Gene Wilder, yeah, Gene Wilder. <laughs> no offense yeah. to Space Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> that's a real film, isn't The it? producers like, is a better film. Yeah. It's a more engaging watch. Gene Wilder was also nominated for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, didn't win. Oh. I mean, he should have. He's fucking brilliant. Yeah, he did win. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I could look it up. It will probably just come to me randomly. It will, yeah, no. In like six hours, you'll just shout it out. No. Middle of the night. <laughs> it was this guy. It was me. No, Maybe right. I'm trying to sleep. No case, please. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But yeah, so uh, blah, blah, blah. that was it. It did come to me. It was uh, George Kennedy in uh, Cool Hand Luke. Oh, okay. That was it. Was it George Kennedy? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Sorry, when I was looking this up ages ago, no, 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 no. It was. um. Jack Albertson in, for his role in The Subject Was Roses. Never heard of it. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, other people nominated in the same category. I remember I remember reading it because one of the other people nominated was the kid who played the Artful Dodger in Oliver. What's his name? Jack Wilde. That was it. Oh, okay. I like to say Oliver because he's got an exclamation mark. Yeah, it has you. You're being true to the I'm being title. True to, I'm being true to the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. To the punctuation. Yes. 
So, you know, it's a film, as I said, this is a film that sort of built up a cult following. And, you know, now it's recognised as one of one of the com- great American films. Yeah. Great American comedies. It's, Comedy you know, classic. Yeah, it's, you know, it's in the AFI 100 for 100. Like, it's, you know, it's a proper critically regarded classic at this point. Yeah. Like, it's, almost, it's pretty much indisputably known as a classic. Now, I don't know how much of this was inspired by the fact that in 2001, a stage musical adaptation of the story was written by Mel Brooks and uh, Thomas Meehan, the the book and the music. And this, uh, the Broadway adaptation starring um, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in the Bialystok and Bloom roles. Was Matthew Broderick on the, in the theatre version as well? Yeah. Okay. Matthew Broderick originated the role of Leah Bloom okay. on Broadway. I knew that Nathan Lane originated the Broadway role, but I, I didn't know who had played Leah Bloom. Yeah. And in an ironic twist, <laughs> I, I, you could say it's an ironic twist, the stage musical was a mega hit. It was a massive hit. Critically, big hit. Audiences, big hit. Oh, yeah. There was no... Oh, I don't really understand it. There are a few changes to the plot. There are a few changes to the plot. And Do you think that they made the big difference? Or is that just coincidence? I, I, I've always... like when Because I've seen I've seen the film version of the musical. I, I, you know, I try, um, I've seen that. And they do change the story. They, I think they sort of... Like, the ending has changed. And I don't like that. I do not like. Do the they win team. in the end? They lose, but then they get pardoned, and then they oh, win. Oh, then they win. Yeah, they win. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> no, you have to send them I to jail. F- yeah, but they get out of jail. They get out oh, of jail. No, why would and you pardon them? Song. They're grifters. And there's a little. They have a song together, which I mean, the song's very good. No, I like the oh, original the really ending yeah. where it's like. We're never just gonna keep. We'll never do this again. We're still going to jail. We're gonna do this exact yeah. drift in jail. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. A, yeah, they that's never a, learned. That's, that's a, the point. Yeah. It's it's always sunny. Yeah, they never learned. Yeah, <laughs> another scheme, please. Congratulations, you now own fifty percent of Prisoners of Love. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's how it ends. You see, Gene Wilder selling what a conservatively three hundred percent of their new musical, Prisoners of Love. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they never learn. Yeah, they never learn. And that's what's so satisfying about it. <laughs> yeah. Also, one of the major other changes in the stage musical, probably to reflect the times as well, um, Ulla is like an actual character. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. fair enough. I don't think you could get away with just having like a uh, dancing oh, yeah. mannequin type. And the other, the other major change is um, Leo and Ulla fall in love, and also they abscond to Rio with the money. And wow! Yeah, they abscond. Fuck you, Max. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole song that you could betray when Nathan Lane just like yeah. Okay, that is actually quite a big change. Yeah, that's yeah, a really yeah. big change. He does come back because he's like, oh, he's the only person who's ever nice to me. Okay, and I'm just I'm like, this is very good, but like I again I don't like it purely because I've seen that. If I not see, if I was unaware of the original movie, yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with it. Fair enough. But I think that that's a change that to me sanitizes it a little bit too much. Makes them less shitty people. Yeah. <laughs> Humanizes them a little too much. Yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. like. I understand. I get why you would make the time. Yeah, I for a get musical, it. I actually yeah. think you probably for a broader do musical? need to do it. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Do you really think the audience would accept? No. Like, no fucking way would they accept the original ending. No, no. They would not accept that. They they would. It doesn't follow the form of what is no. kind of required for no. the arc of a Broadway musical. Yeah. And for and for there to be a reason for there to be so many songs also. Yeah. I don't know where you would you, know, you need oh, to have these songs. character arcs for yeah. songs to make sense. So, obviously, yeah, there's like I obviously why. both Leo and Max have an I want song. Of course. Yeah, like Leo's I want song is literally called I want to be a producer. 
Like, that, well, that does make sense to me, yeah. actually, because like I really like the character of Leo, who starts out feeling so rule-abiding, because yeah. he's like, oh, I noticed this this um, issue with your accounting, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll fix that. Um, whereas Max is obviously, like you say, very corrupting. But that's, but um, yeah, he starts rule-abiding, but like, look at the way Gene Wilder like, sort he of does it. Like, gets turned. Like, yeah. it, it's almost like a mischievous grin on his face. Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, what an amusing coincidence. I, I've always it's read that as like, him manic. being like... It's like he's always been there, but it's... But also he wants um, Max to think he's cool and be his friend. A little bit. I kind of get that. Maybe less so at the start, but once they're in that kind of like, I'm really going to convince you, let's go for a little walk and have a lunch. I don't think... I think he's a very lonely man. That's... And to have someone to be compatriots with is kind of like... I could get on board with That's a different thing. Yeah. Whereas in the musical, I mean, Leo literally has a song called I Want to Be a Producer. And it's not like... I want to be a producer because I want to be... It's basically, like, it implies that he's always wanted... wanted. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that is different yeah. than the movie because in the movie I didn't get the sense that he's always wanted to be a producer. It oh, yeah. It's more I, like point, Max yeah. can just convinces him because he's clearly yeah, it's about a bit of a loser. The money. The, yeah. It's about that. It's not about... You're a bit of a loser. If we yeah. make all this money, you won't... Yeah. Because in the stage <laughs> musical, it ends with the Prisoner's Love on Broadway being a hit. Oh, okay. Starring um, Ulla and I think uh, Roger Debris. Because also in the in the stage musical, Lorenzo Saint Dubois does not exist. Okay. That character just doesn't. It's also explicitly set in nineteen fifty nine. Okay. Yeah. So not the sixties. Interesting. So yeah, it's explicitly set in nineteen fifty nine. Who plays Who plays Hitler then? Um, uh, Is it Roger Debris? Yes. Okay. I, well, hang on, if I remember correctly, no, Franz plays him. Is it going to play him? Oh. And he injures himself. And then Roger Debris plays him instead. Okay. Roger well, Debris basically takes over on like the night. Yeah. I do kind of understand so why. So instead of, oh man, the net's building goes my bones. Instead of that, it's, yeah, yeah. hiya. It's like. Well, yeah. I, I kind of get like the hippie thing is, is less relevant to a 2001 yeah. audience. So I kind of understand that choice as well. Yeah. Whereas I think going in when you're like, this movie was made in this time, therefore yeah. I can contextualise it. But yeah, it is, there, it is a few big, ch- like most of the plot, you know, a lot of the dialogue from the film is in the stage musical. Mm. A lot of it is there, but it's just really interesting because it's like this, this story, just this weird sort of second act where it's a massive hit. Like it to this day, no musical has ever won more Tony Awards. Yeah, not Hamilton. You, you, not even. Yeah, which because you corrected me on that, yeah. I incorrectly said it was yeah. Hamilton, and you were like, no, no, no. The only awards <laughs> that the producers didn't win are ones where they were multiple, multiple they had multiple nominations in the same category. Yeah, like they won every other award they were up for, like all of them. I think it's fourteen. Twelve. Twelve. Sorry. Yeah. It would like I said, you can't. It was one more than the Hamilton, only reason yeah. it didn't win all of, as I say, is because. Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were nominated for the same thing. Oh my god, who won? I believe it was Nathan Lane. Okay. <laughs> I love Nathan Lane! <laughs> I'm not even trying to hate on the musical at all, because the song's really good. It's just I, the comparison yeah, is it's what just, ruins it for if, you. Yeah, like I can't. I know I like what I like and I know what I know. Yeah. You know, I, I want the scummy bastard version but of this story. It's, it's like when I. I'm the same when I compare, you know. Like Matthew Broderick is many things, but Angie and Wilder, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's like me when I compare like two versions of the same thing. I, I classically have complained to you that I like things in their original form. Yeah. And it has to be a really good adaptation for me to care about it. Or else yeah. I'll just be like, but you could just listen to the podcast or read the book yeah. or do blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I'm a purist. What can I say? Yeah. The thing is, Mel Brooks actually was hinting at doing a musical of this in 1981. 
So this has been Ooh, the back of his mind for a long that's time. That's interesting. What a different scene for musicals, though. What a different time. Like, you know, yeah. the, the what an Andrew Lloyd Webber time it was for musicals. Yeah. And, that's, and the thing is, it's not even the only one of his films that he eventually adapted to a stage musical. What he, else did he adapt? Um, Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen that advertised yeah. for West End over yep. the last couple of years. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he adapted it. That was not as successful as the producers. No, no. Not at all. The other sort of incarnation slash version slash meta commentary on the producers, for those of you who've seen Kirby Enthusiasm, you know I'm going with this. Most of season four of Kirby Enthusiasm has Larry David in a production of the producers, or has in four productions of the producers, where he'd play Max Bialystok and Ben Stiller was going to be Leo Blue. <laughs> then they fall out and David Schwimmer takes over. <laughs> it's bit like it gets very meta about them, yeah. But um, yeah. there was something else I just wanted to add um, for, for a quote about the Broadway production. Melbrook said, when we did the show on Broadway during one of the last previews at St. James, there was a big guy who said this was an outrage. How dare you? I was in World War Two. Brooks replied, so was I. I didn't see you there. <laughs> that is a very Melbrook thing to that's say. That's a fun response. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the fact I've talked a lot about this, I worry that I've not done the best job necessarily of convincing people who've not seen this film to watch it. Because I know a lot of people who've seen the musical film, because Will Ferrell is in it as that well. That was like 2005 or yes. something, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, so Will Ferrell, like, it's most of the stage cast, with a couple of exceptions. Um, Will Ferrell takes the role of Franz Liebkind, and Uma Thurman takes the role of Ulla. Oh, okay. Yeah. A lot of people have seen the, the musical version. I know people who, like, in their amateur drama societies, have done an adaptation of... They've done the musical as a... Oh, okay. Yeah, they've done it. But I will say to you this. I know a lot of you have also seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And that's different how you Gene know Wilder. Gene Wilder. It's a different Gene Wilder. He's still an absolute mad bastard, but... A different type of mad bastard, yeah. though. Not a haunting one, I'll say that. Yeah. Because Willy Wonka is haunting. Yeah. If you want a masterclass in just... Physical comedy. Yeah, physical comedy. Um... If you want to experience a delightful mocking of one of history's biggest villains, if you if you want basically if you just want a tight ninety minute comedy that just gets in, gets out, does what it does, makes you laugh like a motherfucker, but also even has throws in actually throwing two very catchy little numbers, two very catchy little numbers that will stick with you. That will stick with you. <laughs> I randomly find myself singing "Prisoners of Love" all the time. But- Cute little earworms. Well done, Mel Brooks. Yeah. Those little chains. Yeah. I Honestly, I found like, the songs in the musical as well. Like, I found myself singing, I want to be a producer. A lot, because it's a very catchy fucking song. It's mm. a really catchy fucking hook. This is one of the great comedies. Like, it is. It's one of the great yeah. comedies. Like, it's, it's still hilarious. There are a lot of comedies from this time that I've seen that I just do not connect with. Like, I just don't find funny. I don't... They don't hit... But if you like stuff like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you like shitty people, if you like <laughs> shitty people trying to scheme, if you like people scheming... This is a real scheme movie. Yeah, if you want to see people fucking try and do a scheme and fail, if you like that sort of thing, I know a lot of you do, this is a film you must see. It's not a film you should see. It's not a film you could see. It's a film you must see. This is the Earth scheme. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know... Zero Mostel is just a fucking amazing so good it's a fucking tragedy that he didn't have a larger career frankly. it really is yeah it's, it's it's a fucking joke it's a fucking joke anyway 
why did you become a suburban mom? I just <laughs> cannot. See, I was going to make a joke about how um, this podcast would make more money as a flop than it would as a hit. But it won't. That's not how podcasts work, That's not work, how baby. podcasts work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Although if anyone would like to become a financier. <laughs> <laughs> Can't produce podcasts without Jackie. <laughs> Jackie. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it there. Um, do you know what you're going to do next time? I do. And uh, it is grift season here on the podcast <laughs> because I have three words for you, audience. Monorail, monorail, monorail. Mono. Don't. <laughs> yes, so I presume that means we're really covering the monorail episode of The Simpsons. Marriage versus the monorail. Marriage versus the monorail. That's next time. We will see you then. Goodbye. Bye. You were listening to the Darling Why podcast presented by Louis Tangaridis and Kate Stewart. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a follow at Darling Why Podcast on Instagram. Feel free to rate and subscribe on whatever podcast feed you're listening to. This podcast is produced, edited and put together entirely by Louis Tangaridis and Kate Stewart. Thanks for listening. See you next time.